Chapter 8 A Yacht in Monaco Once again, rivals were taking notice of Tom Hayes. One of them was Goldman Sachs, the investment bank that epitomized Wall Street's success. Its roots traced back to 1869, when it was founded in a one room office in Lower Manhattan. Over the decades, the firm became the go to for blue chip clients and rich individuals seeking reliable, unbiased financial counsel. By the time it converted from a privately held partnership into a publicly traded company in 1999, Goldman was not just dispensing advice. But also making a killing selling and trading just about any financial product under the sun. With that success came controversy. Goldman was accused of profiteering off struggling clients and even countries, of providing conflicted, self serving advice, of distorting public markets for its own profits. The world's most powerful investment bank is a great vampire squid. Wrapped around the face of humanity, relentlessly jamming its blood funnel into anything that smells like money. Rolling Stone journalist Matt Taibbi would write of Goldman in 2010. The vampire squid moniker stuck. Still, if you were in finance, Goldman exerted a gravitational pull like few other bodies. One day in spring 2008, Hayes got a message from an executive at Goldman. They were interested in hiring him. Would he be willing to meet? Hayes felt some loyalty to UBS, which had, after all, brought him to Japan and put him in a position where he was enjoying professional success that a few years ago would have been unimaginable. Plus, he was grateful that UBS had stood by him when RBC leveled its accusations. But he remained irritated by his pay. That was one thing about Goldman. It had a legendary ethos for earning money not just for its clients, but also for its employees. Ty encouraged her boyfriend to take the meeting, pointing out that the firm was the pinnacle of Wall Street and also happened to be headquartered in Manhattan. Hayes had long wanted to work in New York, where the opportunities for a skilled trader seemed virtually limitless. He agreed to meet. Goldman's starting point was to offer a $4.5 million package, as well as a 10% cut of all his trading profits. Here it was, the life changing bonanza that Hayes, along with just about every other trader on the planet, had been waiting for. But Hayes worried about how he'd fit into Goldman's button down culture. As part of their recruitment efforts, the Goldman executives took him out to dinner at an exclusive Japanese restaurant. Hayes showed up in his usual work getup of casual trousers and one of the polo shirts he'd received as a gift from a broker. His dinner companions, a handful of Goldman bigwigs, wore tailored suits. Hayes felt out of place. A picky, parochial eater whose adventures in ethnic cuisine basically extended as far as a kebab or curry, despite having now lived in Japan for nearly two years, he couldn't decipher the menu. He picked at the weird looking food that arrived at the table, but he hardly ate. Uncomfortable, Hayes made an odd demand. He wanted formal assurances, ideally a provision in his employment contract, that he would be allowed to wear polo shirts to work. It was perhaps the first time in Wall Street history 
that a hotshot recruit had made a sartorial demand as part of a high-stakes job negotiation. The Goldman executives discussed the bizarre stipulation, then assented. Even so, Hayes remained torn. It's like leaving your girlfriend. I'm really happy where I am. Hayes told one of his Goldman suitors, an executive named Edward Eisler. Eisler, one of Goldman's top trading executives, didn't hesitate. It's like leaving your girlfriend because you've met your future wife, he replied. Hayes was impressed by the witty retort, but it didn't help him overcome his anxiety. Hayes told Pieri about the flirtations with Goldman. Moving to retain its young star, Pieri went directly to Ty, arguing that Hayes was a highly valued member of the team who could look forward to untold riches in the near future if he stuck around. Sasha Prince emailed the head of UBS's investment banking division, Yuka Yuanzon, to enlist his support, referring to Hayes as one of my most talented young traders, and noting that as of June, he had raked in $45 million in revenue that year matching his total for all of 2007. Prince proposed to Yoanzon that UBS give Hayes a guaranteed 2008 bonus of $2.5 million. That was unorthodox, especially for a bank that was on the ropes. But Prince reckoned it was the least they would be able to get away with paying to ensure that Hayes didn't accept Goldman's richer offer. Approved, came Yoanzon's one-word reply five minutes later. The deal wasn't as ironclad as it originally seemed. It hinged on UBS and Hayes achieving their expected performances. But it was good enough for Hayes. He became one of the bank's youngest executive directors and took on a few employees. UBS started flying him around the world to meet with some of the world's biggest hedge funds and asset managers, whom he presented with his best trading ideas. Hayes extracted one other concession from UBS. He and Pieri wanted to be in charge of a type of interest rate contract known as Forward Rate Agreements, or FRAs. Those derivatives had been the subject of a turf war between Hayes and Darren. Now Hayes emerged as the undisputed victor. But the conquest quickly proved Pyrrhic. The move enraged Darren, who remained responsible for UBS's LIBOR submissions giving him considerable power over Hayes and Pieri. Until now, the daily decision about where UBS would put its LIBOR numbers had been the product of a collaborative process. The group would discuss who needed what and a consensus would emerge, with Darren the ultimate decision-maker. Now, though, Darren would field Hayes's request and then push UBS's LIBOR submission in the opposite direction. Clients' needs were secondary to the internal battle. The antagonism prompted Hayes to stop speaking in person to Darren, who had moved from Singapore to Tokyo. Instead, he relied entirely on typing out instant messages, even though they were sitting next to each other. And so their conversations became part of the permanent written record. That summer, Hayes and Ty went on a five-day vacation to Bali their first as a couple. Hayes didn't enjoy the change in routine. Having to string together ill-fitting pieces of an inexact itinerary stressed him out. When they got off the plane in Bali and went to retrieve their luggage, 
Ty's suitcase didn't emerge, while Hayes's came off the baggage carousel a bit banged up. Hayes freaked out. Not about his girlfriend's missing belongings, about which he seemed uninterested, but because of the scuff marks on his luggage. Already irritated by her misplaced bag, Ty was further irked by her boyfriend's reaction. When they got to the resort, the pasty-skinned Hayes promptly headed out to sunbathe, refusing to apply sunblock to avoid anything interfering with his absorption of the precious UV rays. That was how he wanted it, and no amount of warning would sway him. The predictable result was that he got severely burnt. That evening, Ty placed damp cloths over his scarlet arms to ease the pain. Back in Tokyo, he soon succumbed to one of his periodic bouts of homesickness. To be honest, I want to go home really badly, he told Reed. The problem was that Ty had arrived only a few months earlier. She had landed a job as an associate at the law firm Herbert Smith Freehills and couldn't quit so soon after being hired. Plus, she loved Tokyo. She won't even discuss going home, Hayes sniffed. She had even figured out how to speak a functional amount of Japanese, a skill that had eluded Hayes during nearly two years in Tokyo, despite 85 hours with a Japanese tutor paid for by UBS. Hayes figured the earliest they could return to England without imperiling Ty's career was June 2010, nearly two years away. He asked Reed how old he'd been when he had his first child. Nearly 31, Reed replied and told Hayes to hang in there for a couple of years before returning to England. After all, he was doing pretty well for himself, right? How was 2008 going? Reed was floored by the answer. Hayes had made $64 million for UBS so far. Reed had been doing some life planning himself. He'd only expected to work for ICAP in New Zealand for a brief spell. By now, he'd been doing it more than a year and had finally had enough. Working in New Zealand, he was isolated. On the other hand, he was continuously bombarded with shouted requests from dozens of brokers in Tokyo and London, not to mention the countless less-than-relaxing hours he spent each day on the phone with Hayes. Sure, he was making good money. He was on track to pocket £254,757, nearly $500,000, in 2008 but he was only seeing his two sons for an hour each morning. His eldest had started complaining that he was spending less time with his dad than when the family was back in England, defeating the entire purpose of the move. In mid-July, Reed flew to Tokyo. He met Ty for the first time, at one point taking her aside and telling her to be kind to Hayes because he was fragile. Then Reed broke his big news to Hayes and Pieri. He had decided to retire at the end of the year. He planned to buy a house on the beach and spend lots of time with his family. Reed's importance to Hayes was hard to overstate. In addition to his LIBOR help, the broker was handling about half of Hayes's trades, not to mention providing constant emotional support. Now Hayes would have to get along without his favorite broker. Reed's news deepened Hayes's feeling of malaise. I know it's funny, but I spend so much of my time doubting myself, he confided to Reed. I don't enjoy myself. 
which is why I thought you would take the megabucks for a couple years at Goldman Sachs and then do whatever pleased you, Reed said. The pressure at Goldman would have been even worse, Hayes sighed. That's one reason I turned it down. The conversation meandered for a few minutes. Then Hayes continued, To be honest, I hate having this big reputation. Makes people really wary of dealing with me. A consequence of success, Reed said. Then the two men got back to trading. Reed's pending retirement meant that Hayes' second preferred broker, Terry Farr, would have to pick up some slack. Farr was having a rough summer. His other main client, Merrill Lynch's Alexis Stenforce, was bleeding money. It didn't help that LIBOR, whose direction it was Stenforce's job as an interest rate trader to anticipate, was moving in utterly unpredictable ways. Merrill Lynch wasn't among the banks that helped set LIBOR, so Stenforce was mystified by its movements, but he suspected that someone, or multiple people, were skewing it deliberately. In any case, Stenforce's lousy performance was awful news for Farr. Don't want to know, mate, Farr said when Hayes started gossiping about Stenforce's problems. He goes, I go. That guy looks after me very well. Don't need that going pear-shaped. He pays me a fucking lot of commissions. I like him, Hayes said. Me too. And of course, there's one other guy that looks after me when he can, Farr replied with a virtual wink. Farr was preparing to depart on a two-week vacation, hiking in England's Lake District, before heading up to Inverness in Scotland. First, though, Hayes was looking for a favor. He had already asked ICAP to get one-month yen LIBOR down sharply to 0.63. He needed R.P. Martin to hit up its bank contacts for help, too. One of the keys was persuading Dutch lender Rabobank, a former agricultural cooperative that had developed an unfortunate taste for trading exotic financial products, to lower its submission. That's where R.P. Martin came in. Farr's colleague, Jim Gilmore, had a good relationship with Rabobank's LIBOR submitter, Paul Robson, nicknamed Pooks. Farr enlisted Gilmore, who pulled it off. Pooks slashed Rabobank's LIBOR submission from 0.71 to 0.63. And HSBC, where Farr and Gilmore had another contact, also moved lower after hearing from the brokers. For Hayes and his crew, these efforts had become so routine that they hardly merited a raised eyebrow. But they were venturing further and further into the territory of unequivocally improper behavior, not only fiddling with an individual bank's LIBOR data, but reaching out across corporate lines to tweak a widely used benchmark for their own financial gain. It wouldn't be hard to construe the behavior as collusive, as a conspiracy to move LIBOR in ways that had absolutely nothing to do with a bank's estimated borrowing costs. The thought had certainly occurred to Hayes at times. For comfort, he told himself that Pieri knew exactly what he was doing, which surely would provide him with cover if things ever went wrong. Two months later, Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. The giant insurer, American International Group, received a record-breaking government bailout, and Merrill Lynch was gobbled up by Bank of America in an emergency deal. 
Thousands of traders, investment bankers, and other employees, not to mention the secretaries and security guards and janitors and cafeteria workers who populated these firms in the thousands, were about to lose their jobs. And the dominoes were just starting to fall. Over the next few weeks, some of America's biggest banks would be subsumed by stronger rivals. Giants like Citigroup, Bank of America, even the great Goldman Sachs teetered on the brink. Overseas, the carnage was similar. Hayes's former employer, the Royal Bank of Scotland, needed a huge bailout from the British government. His current employer, UBS, got one courtesy of Swiss taxpayers. Policymakers in the United States and Britain fretted that the entire financial system might collapse. Some experts wondered whether companies would be able to pay their employees and whether cash machines would keep dispensing money. It looked like the onset of another Great Depression. The bill was finally coming due for decades of reckless financial expansion. The day of Lehman's demise was a public holiday in Japan. At 6 a.m., Pierre called Hayes at home. He broke the news to his sleepy employee. Lehman was filing for bankruptcy, and Hayes needed to get to work immediately. In UBS's mostly deserted office, Pierre himself was overseas on vacation. Hayes spent the day trying to identify every outstanding trade that his desk had with Lehman that hadn't been routed through a central clearinghouse. A bankrupt financial institution couldn't be counted on to follow through on its trades. So Hayes had to go through each transaction and figure out where UBS stood after negating all deals with Lehman. He was in the office until 3 a.m., working with a tech guy to complete the task. Hayes had another challenge that day. He had invested millions of dollars in derivatives that were due to pay off soon if yen LIBOR inched lower. A speculative bet that banks' overall costs to borrow money in the Japanese currency, or at least what banks reported those borrowing costs to be, would decline. The problem was that, with the world's financial system knocked to its knees, basic supply and demand dynamics dictated that banks' borrowing costs would likely spike. That would presumably push LIBOR higher. Hayes needed his brokers to do everything they could to ensure that didn't happen. He called R.P. Martin looking for FAR in London. He's gone on a motorbike track day with a couple of people, Gilmore grumpily explained. Hayes asked the broker to do whatever he could to push LIBOR down. Gilmore called Pooks and relayed the request. Pooks wasn't optimistic. They might go up because the people aren't going to lend again, are they? He said. Who are you going to lend to? Everyone's going to go fucking bust. Not to worry, though. Pooks's colleague at Rabobank also wanted LIBOR lower, for the same reason that Hayes did. And so Rabobank, at the onset of a vicious crisis, submitted data that indicated its borrowing costs, at least in yen, miraculously had declined. Before long, Hayes realized the global crisis could play to his advantage. Most market makers had simply closed up shop, preferring to sit out the stampede. He was one of the few people still open for business. This allowed him to charge huge spreads on each transaction. Everyone was looking to sell, which meant Hayes had to buy. 
and he did so with abandon, quickly amassing large positions. The value of his trading portfolio swung wildly, up $12 million one day, down $10 million the next. Sometimes the gyrations were hourly, but the overall trajectory was upward. A week after Lehman's bankruptcy, Hayes was up $70 million for the year. The biggest reason is that he was snapping up assets from desperate sellers at steep discounts. Even if markets declined slightly, Hayes' positions were still worth more, at least on paper, than what he'd paid for them. Another helpful factor was that Pieri had leaned on Prince and others at UBS to get them to cooperate with the bank's LIBOR submissions. Hayes' trade stood to gain about $4 million for each basis point that LIBOR fell, and Pieri happily reported to his higher-ups that we got some concession from the bank's rate submitters. We will be a little bit lower. Every bit helps. Amid a -a once-in-a-century meltdown, Hayes was making bags of money. That didn't mean he was having fun. Too anxious to sleep, he was pulling outrageously long hours. At times, he felt himself coasting onto autopilot and had to remind himself that this was no moment to let down his guard. Every time I relax, the next day something happens to screw me, he lamented to his old RBS colleague, Brent Davies. The normally easygoing Davies was stressed too. He had much of his life savings on deposit at the fast-unraveling RBS. He told Hayes that every day he withdrew 500 pounds from the bank and kept the cash at home. It was an inopportune time for Ty's parents to come to Tokyo to stay with the couple. But their trip from England had been scheduled far in advance, and there was no getting around it. Hayes didn't adjust his schedule, and more than once he remained at the office until 3 a.m. Wiped out by the time he staggered home, he would sit in a trance-like state, glaring at his phone and watching CNBC. He hardly spoke to Ty's parents. He's always a zombie, Karen told her daughter. All he ever does is look at his Blackberry. Hayes was irritated by her parents' lack of appreciation of the depth of the financial crisis. Ty had taken it upon herself to try to improve her partner's woeful skills in situations like these. Before going out together, she would walk Hayes through a lengthy list of do's and don'ts. Do make polite small talk. Do comment on how you like the host's apartment and enjoy the meal they prepared. Do ask open-ended questions about how work is going. Don't ask people how much money they earn. Don't interrogate them about their views on politics or economic events. Don't comment on their weight. Don't remark on someone being drunk or having eaten a lot. They would agree to a certain signal, a cough or a gentle nudge, that Ty would use to indicate to Hayes when someone was getting bored with one of his rants about soccer, financial markets, or the deleterious impact of divorce on families. It was an uphill battle. In November, the couple went to an American friend's home for Thanksgiving dinner. A number of UBS colleagues were there, including Alikulov. He brought his latest girlfriend, who was seated across from Hayes. He learned that she worked in L'Oreal's hair care division. As everyone ate turkey, Hayes delved into a detailed and loud explanation about his chronic dandruff problem. Afterward, 
the girlfriend sent Alikulov to work with two bottles of L'Oreal anti-dandruff shampoo to present to Hayes. For Reed, the crisis was both good and bad. The chaos reinforced his decision to retire. By October, he was excitedly counting down the remaining days. But that enthusiasm was tempered by the fact that his retirement savings, invested in the market, had been chopped in half. Not a good time to walk out of a job, he said. The same thought had occurred to Hayes, who entertained a brief moment of optimism that his indispensable ally wouldn't be financially strong enough to quit. ICAP, too, tried to seize on Reed's financial problems. A senior manager, Fritz Vogels, offered to set up a miniature brokerage floor in Reed's new beachfront house in Tauranga, New Zealand, so that he could work from the comfort of home. Hayes loved that idea, even if it meant the broker's home would be echoing with his clients shouting. Better soundproof it, he said. But Reed wasn't interested. If he really needed the cash, he told Hayes, maybe he'd get a job as a bus driver. One of the many things the financial crisis upended was Terry Farr's livelihood. At least from Hayes' perspective, the R.P. Martin broker had come to play a vital role helping him get LIBOR where he needed it. In reality, even when he didn't have much to do with it, Farr sometimes was taking credit for banks moving their LIBOR submissions in favorable directions. But when Lehman collapsed, the volume of trades Farr was handling for clients plummeted, even though Hayes was still doing a brisk business. That inflicted a direct hit upon the commissions Farr was receiving. Four days after Lehman's bankruptcy, Hayes and Farr came up with a strategy to solve the broker's problem. It involved a squirrely type of transaction called a switch trade. Two traders at different banks would execute a pair of mirror image trades. For example, Trader A would sell 100 shares of Company X to Trader B. And then Trader A would buy 100 shares of Company X from Trader B. The rapid-fire transactions neutralized each other, but they still had value, at least to someone. Standing in the middle was the broker, who would collect a commission on both transactions from one or both of the trader's banks. It was a way of thanking the broker for a big night out or for anything else of value. Now, Hayes and Farr figured, was the perfect time to deploy switch trades. Move LIBOR lower, Hayes told his broker, and I will fucking do one humongous deal with you, all right? Like a 50,000 buck deal. I need you to keep it as low as possible, all right? If you do that, then I'll pay you, you know, $50,000, $100,000, whatever you want. And I'm a man of my word. Later that day, they hammered out the details of a planned switch trade. Farr could hardly contain his enthusiasm when Hayes outlined a deal so large that it would generate more than $30,000 of commissions. That's excellent, Farr giggled. But Hayes had been speaking literally when he threw out those very large numbers earlier. That's only $31,000, so we'll have to do more than that, he declared. He suggested doubling the transaction size. Farr laughed again. We'll see what we can do then, fucking hell, he said. 
The next step was to find traders at other banks to take the opposite side of the switch. After all, a trade needed two parties, and Hayes could only be one of them. Hayes and Farr started canvassing their contacts. Farr approached Stenforce. I don't know if I can do that, Stenforce responded. If it's a bit dodgy, that's fair enough, Farr said. Stenforce interjected, Yeah, it is actually. Merrill was in the process of being acquired by Bank of America, a deal designed to save the Wall Street firm from bankruptcy, and its managers were trying to get their traders to dial back their risk-taking. This was not a good time to be experimenting with some big switch trades. Farr reported back to Hayes that Stenforce was a no-go. Merrill's has to be squeaky clean, he said. Hayes then approached Stuart Wiley at J.P. Morgan, asking if he'd take the opposite side of the trade. Hayes emphasized that it was a zero-risk, zero-cost transaction for J.P. Morgan, because only UBS would pay commissions to R.P. Martin. What is the reason for it? Wiley asked. I owe Terry a deal, Hayes replied. He has been letting me have good info. Okay, fine, Wiley agreed. Farr then called Wiley to nail down the specifics. He proposed a mammoth 400 billion yen, roughly $3.6 billion transaction, and promised that he'd take Wiley out one night as a reward. But that was way too big for Wiley. They settled on a 50 billion yen deal instead, enough to generate roughly $10,000 of commissions from Hayes. The goal was to do as many switches as possible. It was free money, after all. But to make the scheme work, Hayes needed more trading partners. Luckily, Farr's colleague, Lee Village Aaron, had just the man for the job, a Royal Bank of Scotland trader named Neil Danziger. Born in South Africa in 1975, Danziger's parents, opponents of the country's apartheid government, bolted to England when he was young. Dark-haired, with a doughy face and ruddy complexion, he still maintained a trace of his South African accent. In London, Danziger was a member of RBS's interest rate derivatives team. His main job was executing trades on behalf of his prolific boss in Singapore. Rivals, including Hayes, viewed Danziger as lazy. Out of the office, though, Danziger was a different man. The 32-year-old was ubiquitous at bars and clubs around London. He had a few brokers on speed dial, including Aaron and Tullet Prebon's Noel Cryan and Mark Jones. All of them loved the nightlife. And while Danziger himself wasn't much of a trader, he was handling an envious amount of traffic that originated with his boss, so the brokers did what it took to impress him. R.P. Martin was spending roughly $800 a week entertaining him. Other brokers took him to Spain and Romania, destinations that generally were popular for British bachelor parties. But there were few places in the world that Danziger liked more than the strip clubs and casinos of Las Vegas. One getaway cost Tullet roughly $20,000. Such lavish spending caught the attention of a senior Tullet executive, Angus Wink, but when he learned how valuable Danziger was to the firm, Wink told Mark Jones to carry on. Danziger was wild, but he was also principled, at least in his own way. 
When his brokers shelled out for a wild night or weekend, Danziger could be counted on to return the favor, sending a big trade their way. Often, the commissions on that one trade would exceed the cost of whatever extravagant hijinks had occurred the night before. Everyone seemed to win. The brokers personally pocketed about a third of whatever they hauled in through commissions, and Danziger enjoyed the raucous entertainment. He never saw the relationship between the partying and the ensuing trade as a quid pro quo. It was just good manners. So Danziger was an ideal candidate to participate in the lucrative switch trades. Aaron explained to him that he wouldn't have to pay any fees on the transaction. But Danziger, apparently eager to rack up chits with his fun-loving brokers, surprised him. I'll pay one side for you, he offered. Sorry, Aaron said, taken aback. I'll pay you on one side, repeated Danziger, knowing full well that the gratuitous commission payments would find their way back to him in the form of entertainment. Will you? The incredulous Aaron responded, not believing his good luck. Fucking hell! He said he can pay us on one side of that, he said to Farr, seated nearby. Oh, mate, that's amazing, mate. Thanks very much. R.P. Martin promised to send enough lunch over to feed Danziger and all his colleagues. When Aaron called back to finalize the deal, they settled on a 200 billion yen, $1.8 billion transaction. You are beautiful, mate, Aaron cooed. I love you. Like your style. Thank you very much. At 9.08 a.m. in London, R.P. Martin executed the first 200 billion yen trade between UBS and RBS. 30 seconds later, the brokerage processed another trade, the mirror image of the first. The trades entailed virtually no work by R.P. Martin, but they generated the tiny firm nearly $60,000 in commissions, most of it from UBS, plus another $10,000 from the transaction Hayes did with J.P. Morgan. Farr and his colleagues exchanged high fives. Kaplan, the CEO, congratulated them. When told that Danziger voluntarily kicked in more than $16,000 in commissions, he lauded the RBS trader as a good boy. A bean counter in R.P. Martin's back office apparently the only one whose ethical antenna had picked up the signal of potential trouble, noticed the unusually large commissions and asked what had happened. You really don't want to know, was the response. The back office guy didn't inquire further. Hayes walked over to Pieri's desk. Look, I've done a couple of trades with Terry in and out, he told his boss. I just need to pay him some brokerage. I just wanted to check, is that all right? Pieri said it was fine. Footnote. Pieri would later deny saying this, telling regulators that he was unaware of the switch trades. End footnote. One day in late 2008, Angus Wink summoned Noel Cryan for a meeting. Wink's spiky brown hair and boyish face belied the fact that he'd been in the brokerage industry for more than 20 years. Unlike Tullet's brokers, who worked in an open-plan trading floor, Wink enjoyed the privacy of his own office, albeit one with glass walls and nicknamed The Box. At the time, he ran Tullet's squad of interest rate brokers, but he was about to be promoted to run all of the brokerage's business areas in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. 
He had heard through the grapevine that R.P. Martin was tapping a gold mine via its relationship with Hayes. Specifically, Wink had picked up market chatter that the rival brokerage had pulled in roughly $160,000 in a single month through commissions on interest rate derivatives trades. This was supposed to be Tullet's area of expertise. It was certainly supposed to be Wink's area, and yet they weren't enjoying such riches. Meeting in the box, Wink instructed Cryan to find out what was going on. So Cryan asked Mark Jones. Jones asked Danziger. Danziger, of course, knew exactly how R.P. Martin was making so much money through Hayes, and he told Jones about the switch trades. Jones told Cryan, then Cryan told Wink. We need to get involved in this, Wink said. Footnote. Wink would later deny that he had known of the switch trades or had had that conversation with Cryan. End footnote. And so Tullet did. One pair of switch trades in September generated a quick $48,000 for Tullet, all of it courtesy of RBS. Cryan wanted Hayes to show some love, too. One Monday afternoon in February 2009, after a round of banter about Cryan's hapless Millwall soccer team, Hayes asked the broker to get his colleagues to help push three-month LIBOR lower. I will look after you off the back of it, he promised. I do that for R.P. Martin, too. Cryan didn't see much downside, and there was plenty of opportunity. Cryan said he'd help, and then did nothing. Just spoke to them, his colleagues, and they are on the case, he lied to Hayes a minute later. Okay, mate, much appreciated, Hayes said. If we do this going forward, it will come back to you in spades. Indeed, Hayes promptly agreed to pay Tullet commissions on a big trade at an inflated percentage rate. The next time Hayes asked, Cryan protested that there wasn't much Tullet could really do to help. Its brokers responsible for the LIBOR submitters weren't very good. Hayes interpreted this as Cryan refusing to help. A loud argument ensued. Hayes, once again, threatened to stop doing business with Tullet. Cryan diffused things by promising to do whatever he could to help. He got off the phone. Everyone in the vicinity had heard the explosive argument. He wants me to fucking go and start talking to the cash lines, and he wants LIBORs moved, Cryan explained scornfully. Are you going to do anything? A colleague asked. No, sod him. He's never going to know, Cryan said. He didn't feel any guilt about tricking Hayes. This seemed like what Hayes deserved to pay for being so unpleasant. The decoy worked. More switch trades soon started flowing in Tullet's direction. Hayes and Danziger paired up on each transaction and both paid commissions to Tullet. Some transactions generated more than $80,000 in fees. Massive sums, considering that Cryan's team normally produced less than $10,000 a day in revenue. To anyone paying attention to the team's fortunes, the huge daily spikes were impossible to miss. On some occasions, Cryan told his bosses the jackpots were due to the trades with Hayes and Danziger. But he also knew to keep the information as fuzzy as possible. Have you just done a 35 grand trade today, or has that just gone in wrong? Simon Rogers, who was Cryan and Jones's manager, asked in February 2009. We did that, yeah, 
Kryan responded in a near whisper. Holy shit, Roger said. He asked Kryan where it came from. You don't want to know, Kryan said. Oh, don't I? He said. All right, I get you. I don't want to know. Over the next 11 months, UBS and RBS would route another seven switch trades through R.P. Martin, generating well over $400,000 in commission payments. Five similar transactions went through Tullet, resulting in more than $160,000 in commissions. The brokers, in exchange for attempting to manipulate LIBOR, or at least for tricking Hayes into thinking they were trying, personally pocketed about 30% of the commissions they generated. Partly thanks to trades like this, FAR's total compensation that year would roughly double to the equivalent of nearly $350,000, followed by about $400,000 the next year. Gilmore, whose bank had recently let him know that he had access to a total of less than $30 thanks to an overdrawn checking account, would see his annual income exceed $224,000. Each time one of the trades was booked, Farr ran around the brokerage floor laughing and whooping with delight. He occasionally pulled off a cartwheel. Management came by to congratulate the team. You've had a great day, lads, was a common refrain. Bottles of champagne were sent around. This yen desk is going fucking crazy, Aaron gleefully told Danziger after one of the trades. After work, the team, Farr, Aaron, Gilmore, Cliff King, headed down to the pub for celebratory beers. By paying commissions on meaningless trades in exchange for receiving help manipulating LIBOR, Hayes and the brokers were engaging in what most people would regard as fraud for hire. To be sure, there were no specific company policies against the practice nor laws that explicitly forbade using switch trades to compensate for LIBOR manipulation. But even if the word fraud didn't cross their minds, the participants should have been under no illusion that the switches were kosher. Hayes justified the deals to himself by the fact that he had received Pieri's permission. But he sometimes lowered his voice to a whisper when discussing the arrangements with Farr. Don't fucking put it on chat, he instructed on one occasion. The point is, I'm not really supposed to do it, am I? Footnote. The phone call was recorded, defeating the purpose of not discussing it in a written chat. End footnote. Danziger took such pains to conceal the transactions that he insisted that Tullet vary their timing, sizes, and terms each time a deal was executed so that it didn't look like a pattern. He asked Aaron to keep the trades out of the normal brokerage software program that would be visible to his RBS colleagues and he requested that the trades be executed after his boss had left the office for the day. Farr was deeply indebted to Hayes for the switch trades. In June 2009, Hayes asked him to get six-month LIBOR higher, going so far as to suggest that he cook up fake data to make it look like that was the direction that other banks were moving in, a signal that could persuade other banks to follow suit. It was a variation on the tactic that had so enraged Jeremy Martin, the Lehman trader, a year earlier, and it was a common, if unsavory, industry practice. But nobody had previously taken the approach to its logical extreme. 
and pushing the envelope to create a bogus trail of statistics was duplicity of a higher order. I'll make a special effort, Farr pledged. Then he added, Mate, you're getting bloody good at this LIBOR game. Think of me when you're on your yacht in Monaco, won't you? It was a joke. The idea of the pasty-skinned, scrubby haze on, much less owning, a yacht in Monaco was laughable. But it spoke to a deeper truth. Hayes seemed to have it made. What could possibly go wrong?